Well, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 33. Here we have the culmination of the Jacob-Esau narrative. We were introduced to the two twins back in chapter 25. We saw them wrestling in the womb. And then when Esau was born first, we saw Jacob coming forth, grasping at his heel. And this characterizes Jacob well. He desired to be first. He desired to be the firstborn. I know they were infants, but the, but the picture is there. He desired, he wanted to be first. He wanted what was Esau's. Therefore, he manipulated Esau, stole the birthright. Not only did he steal his brother's birthright, but he and his mother, Rebecca, really it was Rebecca's idea who devised the scheme to manipulate and deceive Isaac and hence steal the blessing that Isaac, can, Isaac intended to convey upon Esau. This plot worked. Isaac blessed Jacob instead of Esau, as you know. And when Esau learned, he became bitter. He cried out, as we read in Scripture, with an exceedingly great cry. It was exceedingly great and bitter cry. And Esau's bitterness, it took root. Don't think bitterness is something we should see as acceptable. It's not a respectable sin. That bitterness takes root, and what ends up happening, it wells over into wrath and hatred. And out of his wrath and hatred, Esau plotted to kill his brother. Remember, he comforted himself by plotting to kill Jacob. Well, somehow Rebecca hears of this plot and she convinces Isaac to send Jacob away to her, uh, her brother in Padan Aram. She told Jacob to stay with her brother Laban um, until Esau's wrath is turned away. Once Esau cools off, so to speak, she would send for him and tell him to come home. But Rebecca never sent for Jacob. In fact, as we've seen throughout Genesis, God was the one who sent for Jacob and summoned him home. He has no idea whether Esau has cooled off or not. He's never, he hasn't heard word of that. But now as he's on his way home, he's going to have to face his brother for the first time in 20 years. I mean, you can just imagine the, how tense this is. You can imagine just the, him being overwhelmed by this moment. Haven't seen Esau in 20 years Last time he saw Esau, Esau's plotting to kill him. He basically flees as a fugitive, and now he's returning home, and he's going to have to face him. Oh, yeah, there's also 400 men with him, and he's about to see him. But as we'll be reminded here today, as we've been reminded all throughout the Genesis narrative, God is with Jacob. God has been with Jacob. He will continue to be with Jacob as he has promised him. I mean, you know, it's only because of God's providential hand that Jacob has made it this far. I mean, he should have been killed by his brother 20 years ago. He could have been killed by his in-laws when he fled. Remember, God protected him. And at the very least, he should have been sent home with nothing to his name because Laban took advantage of him over and over and over, yet somehow... Jacob prospered through it all. But here Jacob is, blessed by God and protected by God. 
God has brought him this far and he will lead him safely home as he has promised. I'm sure some of you can relate. As you consider God's providence and you think, the only reason you're here today is because of the providential working of God in your life. And really that's true of us all. Whether we realize that or not, God is the one who has brought us this far. And surely he will lead us safely home. And I don't mean physically. I mean that he will take us to himself if we belong to Christ. And we're reminded of that here through the the Jacob and Esau narrative. But let's go ahead and read our passage. We'll go ahead and read chapter 33. um, And then I'll pray before we dive in here. So chapter 33, picking up in verse 1. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I've seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him and he took it. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan on his way from Padan Aram. And he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. 
O great God of our salvation. You've graciously saved us through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And the work he accomplished has been applied to us by the Holy Spirit. We are unworthy recipients of your great grace. Yet you have been gracious to us. So I pray for us as your people. I pray that our lives will exemplify the love and grace that you've bestowed upon us. And I pray the same for our friends. Think about Taylor and Galveston County Church. I pray that they will continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Be with him this morning as he preaches your word, as he ministers to your people. I think also about Will and Jonathan and the congregations that, of which you have made them overseers. You've appointed them for this task. And so I pray for First Baptist South Houston and Harvest as they walk through this potential merger. Help these two congregations to grow in their love for one another, to grow in their love for you, and that their lampstand would once again shine brightly in that city. I pray also for John down the road and for Evan. John as he preaches, Evan as he serves his congregation. You be with these men. Help them. And I pray, O oh God, that you will continue to raise up men to preach your word in this city, in this region, and all across the globe. And if it be your will, raise up men here. Some who will be sent out, some who will stay. But I pray for laborers, both men and women alike, who will go out and reap the harvest that you have prepared. I pray for men to lead well in your church, to preach, to proclaim your word. I pray for women to serve well, to be good mothers, to be good wives, to those who are not married, to be godly and faithful in their church. And whatever else, whatever predicament they're in, I pray they'd be faithful. I think about many men and women here. The men and women of Providence, Father, I pray you would help us to continue to live faithfully. Some of us are beginning on that path. New believers Pray you keep us, keep us holding on to you. Many of us also are, are, are near the end of the path and I pray for those that you would help keep them. So Father, no matter where we are on that journey, I pray that your mercies, we would see the newness of your mercies every day, every morning. I pray that every day we'd be able to say hallelujah. Glory and praise and honor belong to you, our great God. Help us to, to fight against apathy and indifference. Help us to fight against the pull that this world has on us. 
and help us to look to you alone, O God. I pray you would work among us today. Stir us up to love and to good works. Help us, O God, I pray. Give us ears to hear your word this very day. Amen. So as we approach Genesis 33, it's helpful for us to just quickly remember the, the, the immediate context here, to quickly reflect upon that. What has taken place in chapter 32, uh, leading up to 33. So in 32, as we saw, Jacob, he knows he's about to meet Esau. Esau's coming to him with 400 men whenever his men reported back. And so what does he do? Well, he divides his camp into two groups so that at least some of them might be preserved. He prays to God out of despair, and he sent a generous gift to Esau. So Esau, accompanied by 400 men, is on his way to meet Jacob. Jacob takes precautionary measures. He prays, and he seeks to appease Esau's wrath. And that very night, after doing these things, that very night, he sends his family and his household across the river. He's left by himself. And as we saw last week, he spent the night wrestling with God. And this wrestling match would leave him physically impaired. As you know, he, he, he left this wrestling match with a limp. But he didn't complain. In fact, after the wrestling match, he said, I've seen God face to face, yet my life has been delivered. Seeing the face of God is life-threatening. Remember Moses. I mean, it, it, it is. Seeing the face of God is life-threatening, yet God preserved his life. So the morning after, the morning after this wrestling match, Jacob would limp along with a new confidence. He's physically broken, but he knows that God is on his side. And that brings us to chapter 33. I've divided this passage into four sections. You can find that on page five of your worship guide. In verses one through two, we'll see Jacob taking precautionary measures. He divides his family um, and he spaces them out. Then in verses three through 11, we see Jacob and, and Esau finally reuniting. We'll spend a lot of our time there. Um, then in verses 12 through 17, we, we see the brothers, they, they part ways. Um, they don't spend a whole lot of time together, but they do reunite and then they go their separate ways. And then in verses 18 through 20, we see Jacob arriving in Shechem. So really 18 through 20 will set us up for next week and it will remind us that Jacob has finally made it to the promised land as God has promised. So as we walk through this passage, we're gonna consider reconciliation, the reconciliation between these two men in light of God's providence. So reconciliation, what is it? It's, be, it's bringing two estranged parties together. So reconciliation, bringing those who are estranged from one another, bringing them together. Providence, what is it? Providence is God's preservation and governance of his creation. And here we see reconciliation taking place between Jacob and Esau in light of God's providence. One of the great benefits of scripture is we can read narratives such as this really from two vantage points. 
We can read scripture from the ground level. Here we see Jacob and Esau being reconciled. But we can also see, we can also read scripture from above, from a heavenly perspective. So what I mean by that is we have insight. As we think about the scriptures in light of the context, we have insight into God's providential dealings with Jacob and Esau. Essentially, we have a behind-the-curtain perspective. So we know from chapters 28 and 31, as we've been walking through those, we know that God promised to bring Jacob back to his home and to bring him safely back to his home. Not to bring him back as a dead man, a dead man, but to bring him back safely. We also know that Jacob prayed accordingly, as we see in Genesis 32. He prayed God's promise to come, he prayed for God's promise to come to pass. And now as we come to chapter 33, we see God's promise come to pass. So from a ground level perspective, we see reconciliation between, between two estranged brothers. But from a heavenly perspective, we know that God is providentially at work. And we could say he's working through Jacob's prayer. So that's what we'll see. That's what we'll spend a lot of our time with. And after we walk through this passage, we'll observe the Lord's Supper. And we'll emphasize that idea of reconciliation. Because while we see reconciliation here, we also have read in 2 Corinthians 5 about man being reconciled to God. Here, we're going to see Jacob and Esau being reconciled, and what do they do? They part ways. When we think about man, the sinner, being reconciled to God, it's not a parting of ways. It's a bringing together fellowship of communion. Hence, we will take of the Lord's Supper, which is oftentimes called communion. We have communion with God and communion with one another. So just keep those things in mind as we walk through. So let's go ahead and turn our attention to verse 1 of 33. So here we see at the beginning, Jacob lifted up his eyes and he looked. And behold, Esau was coming and 400 men are with him. So just hearing about this in chapter 32 brought great distress to Jacob. So what will he do now? What will he do? Well, in verses 1 and 2, we see him dividing his family into groups. So if you recall from chapters 29 and 30, we saw that Jacob has two wives and two concubines. And each of the four women bore children for Jacob. When we looked at that passage, I talked about how polygamy is a perversion of marriage. So I'm not going to readdress that here but we do see the consequences of this perversion. There's a hierarchy in his family. He has a preferred wife and a preferred son. And that's evident because he places the two maidservants in front, as you see in verse two, with their children. After them, he places Leah and her children, and they're followed by Rachel and Joseph. Joseph was Jacob's beloved son, and Rachel was his beloved wife. And he places them last of all so that if Esau comes and he attacks, he wages war, maybe they will be able to escape. And just on a side note, as we get to the Joseph narrative, think about why his brothers hate him. It's just something to to, to store away for a little while. So what we have in verses 1 and 2 is Jacob dividing his family. He spaces them out as they're about to to meet Esau. So he's taking precautionary measures if things go south, 
But instead of staying behind, instead of letting them go first, we see in verse three, he himself went on before them. So Jacob doesn't take up the rear guard. He goes before his family and he approaches Esau, essentially placing himself in harm's way. He does not go as one who will strike first. He goes with humility and submission. Just look again at verse three. He goes on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. So bowing down is a show of respect. It's a gesture also that symbolizes, I am at your mercy for you to do with me as you will. I mean, I'm in a very, you know, think about that. I'm in a submissive posture. Do with me as you will. So Jacob goes before his family, submitting to Esau's mercy, placing himself on the front lines. And then in verse four, I would say we see something very remarkable. At the very least, at the very least, we might expect Esau to come and scold his brother for past wrongs, to come and argue with him, to just let all of that out. But that's not what happens. And look here, as Jacob is bowing himself to the ground, verse four, but Esau ran to meet him. He ran to him, and rather than striking him down, he embraced him. He fell on his neck, he kissed him, and they wept. I mean, just think about the emotion in this scene. The tears here speak volumes. As I was working through this, um, I I, I was reminded of my wife, and yes, I've asked her about this, so I didn't do this without her permission. But whenever she found out initially that she was pregnant, we had tried many years She struggled with infertility. And when she found out, I was awakened in the morning to her weeping. Those tears uttered more than a thousand words could express. Think about Jacob and Esau. Think about these tears. These tears speak volumes. Many years apart. Separated by wrath and by fear. And now we have a scene that expresses intense relief. We don't know how long the men spent in this embrace, but we can just imagine the buildup, the embrace, the tears that are being cried, and the words that don't have to be spoken at this moment. And but we do see after this initial embrace, Esau in verse 5, he looks up and he sees the women and the children that are with Jacob. And he asks, Who are these with you? Jacob responds by saying, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. So Jacob maintains this posture of humility, both before Esau and before God. He refers to himself as Esau's servant, and he refers to God's gracious gift of children. These children are undeserved blessings, and Jacob realizes that. And so in verses six and seven, We see Jacob's family drawing near. They come to Esau and they bow down before him. They come in the same order that Jacob had divided them in verses one and two. Servants and their children come first, then Leah and her children, followed by Rachel and Joseph. And after meeting Jacob's family in verse eight, Esau says, what do you mean by all this company that I met? 
And Jacob responds by saying to find favor in the sight of my Lord. So if you recall the blessing from chapter 27, the one that Jacob stole from his brother, we could say really it was intended for Jacob all along, even though he used deceptive means to gain it. doesn't mean that would be approved by God, but that it was essentially God working even through the worst case scenario to do that which he had purposed to do. But anyways, whenever we see Isaac blessing Jacob, and he, what he said to Jacob was, you'll be Lord over your brothers. And he said, your mother's sons will bow down to you. He also afterwards blesses Esau, which is kind of an anti-blessing. And he says, you will bow down and serve your brother. Yet here we have Jacob approaching Esau as a servant. He refers to Esau as my Lord. I mean, at the end of verse 8, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. Now, this doesn't mean that Jacob is disowning the blessing More than anything, this is a shocking sign of humility. I mean, Jacob is is humbling himself. I mean, he's in some ways has no choice. Remember, he is here in this moment. He's physically hindered. He's limping before his brother, submitting to him. But we see humility. To a certain extent, this reminds us of the humility of Jesus Christ. We read in Philippians 2 that Jesus humbled himself by taking on the form of a servant by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So since there's ultimately one author of scripture, yes, many men penned the scriptures, but this Bible that you have is ultimately authored by one author, God himself. Therefore, it should not surprise us that we have echoes all throughout scripture of Christ-like humility. But unlike Christ, Jesus our Lord, Jacob's humility in this case was to earn or seek Esau's favor. Christ did not seek the favor of God for he had the favor of God. Jacob here is humbling himself, seeking Esau's favor. As such, he gives Esau a gift that is fitting for a king. We saw that really in in chapter 32. He sent that gift on ahead of him and Esau initially in verse nine, he rejects it. He says, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Esau has done quite well for himself over the past 20 years. He's either the leader of these 400 men or he has enough money to hire 400 men. We don't know, but Esau's done quite well for himself. So he tells Jacob, keep what you have for yourself. But in verse 10, Jacob is insistent. He, he says, no, please accept my present. He sees Esau's acceptance of this gift as a sign of their reconciliation. So for Jacob, this, him receiving the gift will be symbolic that peace has been made, that reconciliation has now come between the two brothers. And to further his appeal in the second half of verse 10, we see something that at face value seems strange to our eyes. For I have seen your face which is like seeing the face of God and you have accepted me. Is Jacob comparing Esau's face to the face of God? Surely not. I mean, there's no way that seeing Esau's face is comparable to seeing the face of God. I mean, first of all, we have the creator-creature distinction. 
God is not like us. Second, God is a spirit. He does not have a body like men. And not only that, we learn from Hebrews 12 that Esau was a profane man. So this is certainly not a physical or even a spiritual comparison between the two. So what does Jacob mean when he says, I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me? Well, to understand this, let's just look at the structure of the sentence. There's three phrases here. The first phrase is, I have seen, let us see, let me go back. I have seen your face. That's the first phrase. I have seen your face. Second phrase, which is like seeing the face of God. Third phrase, and you have accepted me. So the second phrase here is the one I want to key in on. This introduces a comparison. It's a comparative phrase. This phrase is very important, but to help us understand its function, let's remove it for a second. And if we were to remove this second phrase, here's what we'd read. I have seen your face and you have accepted me. So Jacob has seen Esau face to face and Esau did not strike him down. Just like He saw the face of God the night before, and he was not struck down. Jacob's saying, I have seen God face to face and found favor. Remember Moses. I mean, that's what I mentioned to him earlier. God tells Moses, you cannot see my face. You cannot see my face and live. Jacob has seen God face to face. Yes, most likely a Christophany, an appearance of God. But he says, I've seen your face, oh God, and I've lived. I've been delivered And here, I've seen the face of Esau, and you've accepted me. I found favor. That's the comparison. I saw God and found favor. I saw Esau and found favor. Not that Esau looks like God. That's not the case. That would be bringing God down. That'd be a profaning God. We cannot imagine God, especially like a profane man like Esau. So the comparison, I saw God, I found favor I've seen your face and I've found acceptance. And because of this, because you have accepted me, because God essentially is on my side, you've accepted me, I've been the the recipient of such unmerited favor, please, in verse 11, accept my blessing that is brought to you. Because God has dealt graciously with me. This is most likely a reference to the night prior and to the last 20 years. God has done nothing but good. He's he's dealt graciously with Jacob, who deserved nothing good because we think about what type of man he was, and yet God has been so gracious to him. Please accept this gift. And after pleading with him, we see at the end of verse 11, thus he urged him and he took it. So he receives Jacob's gift. So in this section here, we witness the reunion between Jacob and Esau. They embraced one another, they wept together, and then Esau accepts Jacob's gift. In some ways, the acceptance of this gift is like the acceptance of a peace offering. Jacob wants no trouble and neither does Esau from the look of things. So Esau accepts this gift signifying reconciliation between the two brothers. So from a ground level perspective, we see 
Esau and Jacob letting bygones be bygones. But as we know, there's much more to the story. We know there's much more going on than Esau simply letting the past lie in the past. First of all, we know that God promised to be with Jacob and to protect him. Second, we can say God answered Jacob's prayer to be with Jacob and to protect Jacob. Why can I say this with with confidence? Because Jacob prayed and God answered that prayer. He does what Jacob prayed, but he also, Jacob prayed what God promised to do. Just look at verse 11 of chapter 32. This is important. I think this would be important for us to just consider these things for a few moments here. So verse 11 of chapter 32. Jacob, as he hears about Esau coming with 400 men, he says, please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers and their children. He was fearful. He was worried that Esau was about to come and attack. And so he prays to the, to the Lord, please deliver me. And here in chapter 33, God does just that. I mean, why else is Esau coming with 400 men? I mean, this looks like a raiding party. Yet, as we'll see, God turns this into a welcoming party. Esau is going to offer to accompany Jacob on his journey, which I find amazing because, as we know, God softens Esau's heart toward Jacob. I mean, as one commentator points out, although God did not intervene to speak to Esau so as to restrain him as he did Laban, one way or another, God has acted even more spectacularly. He has proved that the mind of a king or other superior is a stream of water that he can channel in his direction. If you recognize Proverbs 21.1 there, reads, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Think about that. Amazing as we think about God's providence, Esau wanting to kill his brother coming with an army, and yet now they're welcoming him. So while we see Esau letting bygones be bygones, we know that God is the one providentially working behind the scenes. He's the one bringing reconciliation as he is answering Jacob's prayer. Jacob prayed God's promises back to him. And here we see God answering that prayer. Remember, prayer is ordained by God. It is oftentimes, we see in Scripture oftentimes, that God will not act apart from our prayers. Not that our prayers put us in the power over God. No, we we are subservient to God. Not that our prayers make God at our beck and call. No, no. But as we see in Scripture, God oftentimes does not act apart from the prayers of man. In this case, it's the prayer of Jacob working in congruence with the providence of God that brought forth reconciliation between Jacob and Esau. Remember, God ordinarily works through means. Just like he brings sinners to salvation through the preaching of the gospel, he ordinarily accomplishes his will through the prayers of the righteous. And that's what we see here with Jacob. Jacob prayed that God would do as he said he would do. 
Go back, listen to our prayer seminar. We talk about these things. We pray God's promises back to him because this is God's ordained means. James says, you have not because you ask not. Ask according to the will of God. Pray his promises back to him. And as you pray, don't be passive. Jacob prayed, and we see that he also acted. This is not an evaluation of his actions. I'm not evaluating that here, but rather I'm showing that Jacob did not pray and then sit back on his couch and do nothing and expect God to reconcile him to Jacob. So he didn't do that. That's one extreme he could have done. Pray and then just wait and say, hey, I just hope that you'll reconcile us. The other extreme would be to do all that he could to be reconciled apart from prayer. So Jacob prayed and he sought to be reconciled. The implication here is that we are not called to a life of prayer and passivity. Neither are we called to a life of activity without prayer. I mean, this is basic Christian living. We don't pray and sit on the couch and wait for God to answer our prayers. No, we seek to walk in God's ways. And we pray all the more. We pray because we need God. We pray because we're dependent upon God, not only for physical life, but we're dependent upon God for a life of faith and practice, to live a life honoring to him. We need to have the, reconciled, the reconciling work of Christ applied to us through faith, that we might be accepted by God. And we need the work of the Spirit to regenerate and to renew our hearts, that we might desire God, that we might desire to walk in his ways. So it would be erroneous for us to say, I will pray for God to do such and such a work in my life, and I'm just going to wait for him to act. I'm going to pray for God to do it, and I'm just going to sit back here and, and wait. That would be an error. But it would also be an error to say, I'm going to obey God in my own strength, in my own power, apart from prayer. I know none of you would say that. But prayerlessness expresses that. When we seek to follow God apart from prayer, we are being disobedient to God. Prayer is commanded by God. And through prayer, God strengthens us to walk in his ways. So I bring this to your attention. We have an implication here from the life of Jacob because these two extremes need to be avoided in our Christian lives. On the one hand, we have passivity. On the other hand, we have hyperactivity. I mean, we oftentimes make the Christian life so hard. I'm not saying that the consequences that just living in a fallen world is not hard, but the decision's really easy. For those who've been given the Spirit of God, the decision is easy. Trust in the Lord and walk in His ways. But so often, the flesh is weak. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Others drag us down, or we allow them to drag us down. We see the things of this world as enticing. We forget, we're quick to forget. We talked about that last week, why we need to remember. We need to gather every week because we need to be reminded after spending six days out in the world we need this reminder that God is our God and he is worth pursuing our pursuit because he alone is worthy. Trust in the Lord. 
Walk in his ways. That's the Christian life. And in a way, we're reminded of that from Jacob's example. His prayer of desperation does not lead to passivity. It actually leads to action. Once again, this is not an evaluation of his activity, but rather an illustration that the prayers of the righteous are not to be accompanied by passivity. It's a gross misunderstanding of God's providence that is presumptuous. Just as it is presumptuous for us to pray for God to deliver us from sin and then just go right back into it, it's presumptuous for us to say, I trust God, I'm praying to God, and then I'm just gonna do nothing. It's presumptuous for us to then also do everything we can to be obedient without trusting God, without prayer. Two extremes to be avoided. One, prayer and passivity. Other hand, hyperactivity, doing all we can in our our own power and own strength and no prayer. Trust the Lord, look to him, pray, be obedient. Don't sit around and wait. So what we see with Jacob, he gives gifts to Esau. He humbly approaches Esau, but ultimately it was God who hears his prayer and answered his prayer and reconciles him to his brother. And after this great picture of reconciliation, In the next section, and we'll walk through this rather quickly, but the two men part ways. Esau receives the gift, and then in verse 12, he says, let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. So Esau offers to travel with Jacob by leading the way, but then in verse 13, Jacob says, my Lord knows the children are frail, and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. So Jacob appeals to the pacing of their journey. Um, I was thinking about it in a sense, it'd be like me going for a run with some of you professional runners here. Um, The pacing would practically kill me. Um, I wouldn't be able to keep up. It would be dangerous to even try. And then next Sunday, I would not be able to stand here. Um, So Jacob knows he can't keep up with Esau. It's likely that he's pushed the pace very hard, very fast in their flight from Laban. Um, And so he tells He saw in verse 14, let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant. I will lead on slowly. And then he says, I will do this until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Seir, that word there is is really the country where Esau lives. Um, Jacob says he intends to follow him there. But if you look in verse 16, Esau returned to Seir, but Jacob in verse 17 journeyed to Succoth. So Jacob doesn't go. Maybe he had good intentions. Maybe this is similar to to some of us. I'm sure you've done this. You see someone you haven't seen in a long time and you say, hey, you know what? It'd be good for us to get lunch together. Be good for us to go grab coffee. And what typically happens? You don't do it. Maybe you see him again in 20 years and you say the same thing. So maybe he had good intentions and didn't follow through. Or maybe he's deceiving his brother. We really don't know. We don't know at this point. I'll leave that for you to figure out. Tell me why Jacob um, says he's gonna go there and doesn't. Um, please help me understand. But what we do see is Jacob is essentially objecting to Esau's companionship here because Esau in verse 15 also offers to leave some of his men with Jacob. But Jacob says, what need is there? 
Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So maybe Esau is concerned for his brother's well-being. And so he's trying to leave some of his men to accompany Jacob on this journey. But, we, but, but what we do see from this exchange is that Jacob really has no intention of, of living among Esau. He has no intention of going to Seir and settling there. I mean, why would he? I mean, God called him to go back to his homeland, back to the land of his father, not to Esau's homeland. So Esau will go home and Jacob will continue on. And in verse 17, we see that he comes to Succoth. He builds a house there. He makes booths for his livestock. We aren't sure how long he's going to stay here. More than anything, this is just showing us the establishment of this city. Succoth will be given to Gad, um, to the tribe of Gad after the Exodus. Um, so Succoth, though, is a city east. So it's east of the Jordan. And what this reminds us is that Jacob has not yet entered the promised land. At this point, he is on the brink of his homeland. He is almost there. And so as we now look at this next section, in verses 18 through 20, we now see Jacob, as he's refused to go with Esau and and go actually outside the promised land, he now is about to enter in to the promised land. So just a couple of observations. Jacob obeyed God and he returned to the promised land and God was faithful and brought Jacob back to the promised land as he said he would. Look at verse 18. Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram, and he camped before the city. So Jacob has finally arrived. God told him back in chapter 31 to return to the land of your fathers. I'll be with you. So he told him to go home. And now God has brought Jacob home. And then in verse 19, Jacob buys a piece of land from Hamor, Shechem's father. If you recall, Abraham bought a burial site in the, in the land of Canaan. Now Jacob will buy a piece of land as well, not to bury his dead, but to build an altar. As we see in verse 20, he erects an altar and calls it El Elohi Israel. So this altar is essentially named God, the God of Israel. So Jacob has arrived in the promised land as God promised. God has brought him this far. Jacob's now here. He now builds an altar and calls it God, the God of Israel. This altar is not God. Jacob's not a pagan. I mean, he knows that the one true God cannot be reduced to shrines made by human hands. But here he establishes this altar where he will offer up sacrifices as an act of worship to God. This altar is a statement. Jacob lives in a pagan land. He's surrounded by pagans. But here, he establishes this altar, thus establishing him and his family as as worshipers of the one true God. You know, we live in a day where many of our young people are so quick to reject the traditions of our parents and grandparents. We're so quick to deconstruct the traditions that have been preserved for us. And before we tear these things down, let's first consider what they signify. 
it's not a statement, it's not a political statement at all, but, but I'm talking more even figuratively, even traditions as going to church, it's it, it, traditions that, that our parents and our grandparents have preserved for us. Before we tear these things down, before we tear down, oh, that's just some ancient old faith. Let's consider what these traditions signify. And here, think about it, what would this altar signify? Not only for Jacob, but also for his children and grandchildren. I mean, this altar would serve as a place of worship and it would serve as a memorial that God is with his people. This is a reminder of God's providential dealings with Jacob. God's brought him into the promised land as he promised to do. And so every time they come to this altar, they'd be reminded that God has brought them safely home. This altar would be a place of worship and a place to reflect upon God's providence. And just think about it. Where would Jacob be apart from the providential hand of God? If not for the providence of God, Jacob would not have made it this far. So as Jacob would come to this altar, he'd be reminded of God and what God has done. He'd be reminded of God's providence. As the English Puritan John Flavel comments, reflections upon God's providence is a time of sweet communion with God. When Jacob heard about Esau and his 400 men, he was fearful and scared. When he went to his uncle, he was deceived and taken advantage of. But as he looks back and reflects, he can see that God was with him through it all. God protected him from his father-in-law's deception and trickery, and God brought reconciliation between he and his brother. Now, as we consider God's providence, we have to be careful. We must remember that God's providence applies not only to the grander matters of life, but even to the minutest detail. John Flavel, to quote him again, not only the great and more important, but the most minute and ordinary affairs of our lives are transacted and managed by providence. So as we look back, like Jacob would have done, as we look back upon God's providence in our lives, we can enjoy sweet communion with God as we thank him for bringing us this far. God has preserved our lives from many dangers, some of which we are aware, many of which we're not. Not only that, but for the believer, God has providentially led you to see the beauty and worth of Christ. At one time, we were all children of wrath. We were like the rest of mankind, but God made us alive together with Christ. And through Christ, he has reconciled us to himself. And while our stories are different in terms of how we came to Christ, we have all come to see the beauty and worth of the same Christ. Our journeys to Christ are vastly different. And as we reflect upon God's providential hand in bringing us to Christ, we can all say, if not for the grace of God, I would not be here today. 
If not for the grace of God, I would not be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. If not for the grace of God, I would be an enemy of God, rejecting the gift of himself. And there are some of you today who are here, who are currently enemies of God. But in God's providence, you are here today. And you've seen God's providence in the life of Jacob. And you are here today by God's providence to hear about the greatness of Christ. You're here today to see in the Lord's Supper as we partake of it in a few minutes, the the saints who are saying, Christ died for me and that is the only hope I have. You're here today to be reminded that it is through Christ alone that we're reconciled to God. Christ Jesus, the Son of God, took on human flesh. He took on our nature, yet he remained without sin. He is the sinless, spotless Lamb of God who lived a righteous life, fulfilling the righteous obligations that God demands of us all. And being the righteous Lamb of God, he took the sins of his own upon himself, and through faith in him, he canceled the record of debt that stands against us. This he set aside by nailing it to the cross. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. We've been healed. So if you today are an enemy of God, whether outwardly defiant or by your apathy and indifference, if you are an enemy of God, thank God for his providence. He's brought you here today to hear these very words, the very words that Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, I implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. In a few minutes, We'll partake of the Lord's Supper. And this meal reminds us that we've been reconciled to God through Christ Jesus, our Lord. We're reminded of God's providence in bringing us who are the faithful, bringing us who were once God's enemies to himself through Christ. We're reminded that apart from the Spirit working in us to draw us to the Father Through the Son, we would not be reconciled to God. But through Christ Jesus, our Lord, we've now received this reconciliation. And for that, we rejoice. But this reconciliation, as I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, is not to be compared to the reconciliation we see between Jacob and Esau. They were reconciled, yet they went their separate ways. Yes, their relationship went from one of hostility to peace, but they parted. Our being reconciled to God changes our relationship with God. We go from hostility to peace. God was once our enemy. Now he is our God. And being our God means we have fellowship with him. We can draw near to him and we can commune with him through Christ Jesus, our Lord. And it's that reconciliation that we're reminded of as we eat of the bread and drink of the cup, we've been reconciled to God and now we can enjoy communion with him. So before we approach the Lord's Supper, let's take a moment and pray.
Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you for this reconciliation that you have providentially worked in our lives. Apart from you, we'd be strangers to the household of God. We would ultimately be enemies of you and your kingdom. So help us remember these things. Help us to remember the work that you have done. We see with Jacob and Esau, we see this this reconciliation, but as we know from scripture, we know from the rest of your word, this was all your working. You ordained all these things, you orchestrated all these things that have come to pass. And in our lives, the same is true. You've orchestrated everything in our lives leading us right here to this place, this very day, to this moment. Oh, that we would rejoice in that, be comforted, knowing that your providence is overwhelming when we think about it, when we think about how great you are and that you care for us. I pray that we would be overwhelmed. We would stand in awe, but not paralyzed. We would trust you, walk in your ways and pray all the more. So help us as we come to the table this morning to look to you, to trust in you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.